Hello and welcome to The Art and Design of Sci-Fi and Fantasy, Mystery and Horror. Today I speak with Greg Bear, author Greg Bear, uh, well known for lots of stuff. Um, some people consider him a hard science fiction writer, which he is, but uh, he's written all kinds of, uh, of books and short stories. Um, we talk about how he got started in writing uh, back in the um, 50s, thereabouts, and uh, how he slowly progressed um, success-wise into the 60s. He met um, writers he had been reading and, and um, admiring, and then uh, from there on to uh, current day, uh, the success he's had throughout the, uh, the decades. Uh, we talk about uh, some of his motivation, how he uh, chooses what to write, uh, what he likes to study and incorporate in his writing. Uh, so all kinds of good stuff, um, both about him and a bit about the history of the publishing industry, the sci-fi publishing industry, which is also very fascinating. Uh, as an aside, you'll um, hear some background conversations. Apparently, um, the room we chose to uh, do the interview in uh, was empty when we entered, but it turned out to be the uh, ESPN um, interview room for the uh, the Spelling Bee that was being held at the um, at the uh, National Harbor Hotel, the Gaylord in uh, the Washington D.C. area. So uh, that was kind of a funny little uh, little thing um, going on there. I think they were wondering who we were, and we were wondering who they were. So uh, it all worked out in the end. It was a, a great interview. Anyway. So, uh, thank you, and enjoy. I'm here at Escape Velocity 2018 with author Greg Bear. Thank you for speaking with me. My pleasure. Thank you. So, uh, tell me, let's start from the beginning. How did your career in writing start? Well, I started writing when I was six or seven years old, mm -hmm. and uh, doing comic strips and illustrations and all that kind of stuff, anything I could scribble with. Um, and by the time I was eight, I was writing short stories, eight or nine, mm -hmm. uh, and, and typing them up on my folks Olympic portable mm -hmm. and uh, I kept that for years and I typed on it typed my first novel on it all that sort of stuff so mm -hmm. um, but I, I started off being interested in just about everything I wanted to do special effects I wanted to do artwork I wanted to do writing mm -hmm. and finally I settled on writing as the one where I could probably survive mm -hmm. so what uh, genre were you into at the time everything mostly imaginative stuff I loved uh, the movies, of course, but also comic books, mm -hmm. uh, science fiction books. I was reading uh, Heinlein a little bit at that time, uh, Tom Swift books, you know, what I was what was available to me. And eventually I realized there was a huge greater world of science fiction out there um, with things like Skylarker Space and, mm -hmm. and uh, Starship by Brian Aldiss. So I was introduced to a lot of different authors through paperbacks mm -hmm. that were sent to me where I was living in Kodiak. Mm -hmm. And then Kodiak, the Navy base, had a very good library of classic hardcover science fiction. Uh, short story collections, novels, all that kind of stuff, and I caught up on those. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I remember at the panel that I heard yesterday that uh, you just did a ton of reading, that you just absorbed everything. Of course, whatever was available. There just wasn't that much available then. Mm -hmm. you know. So nowadays it's a wealth of nearly everything. Authors publishing for themselves, publishers publishing, uh, old stuff to catch up on. Uh, we were the golden age if I were 12 years old now. Yeah, yeah. So did you uh, try to mimic anyone you were reading at first? You know? Tom Swift. I think I wrote Tom Swift books. I, mm -hmm. I also parodied uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs' book when I was 14 or 15. Mm -hmm. uh, wanted to do a John Carter book. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was doing a little bit of that pastiche sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I was writing my own stuff, too. So, uh, okay, so you did copy the styles also? Subject matter. I never understood what the style was, so I just tried to write about the characters and the subject matter. Okay. What did, uh, in your youth, what did you find most difficult to uh, to write? What part of the process? Well, there's the usual problem of starting a story and or finishing a story. And eventually I worked through all that. By the time I was 11 or 12, I was writing complete stories mm-hmm. and sending them off. Uh, my, my folks encouraged me to, to submit my stories to different things. I submitted actually a cartoon to Saturday Evening Post, which they very politely declined. I was like 11 years old. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, finally, you know, when I was 14, started sending off stories to Analog mm-hmm. and uh, got rejections from John W. Campbell. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then a few years later, I started selling. I sold one story to Famous Science Fiction for ten dollars. Mm-hmm. That was my first publication. I was fifteen when they bought it. Sixteen when it was published. Did they know how young you were? I I suspect they might have. Mm-hmm. I had been working uh, or actually co- uh, corresponding with Robert A. W. Lowndes, mm-hmm. who was the editor and a well-known editor and science fiction writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was his magazine, and he had a whole bunch of others, including Magazine of Horror and all that kind of stuff. Okay. And he was gathering up a lot of different writers, including Stephen King. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Alan Dean Foster might have been involved in that, or at least in Arkham House. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are a lot of writers trying to break in by getting into small small publications. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so when you did make your first sale, did that change anything about your process or how you approached the craft? No, I just kept writing. Okay. Yeah, I, was, I was too naive and ignorant to realize how difficult it was going to be. Mm-hmm. But also, things were really starting to change in the 1960s. Okay. Uh, you were getting more and more readership. Uh, you were getting more and more interesting authors mm-hmm. coming up, you know, out of the 50s and the 60s. Uh, and we were meeting a lot of them because we were science fiction convention goers. Okay. So my friends and I drove up from or bussed up from San Diego to um, Oakland. Mm-hmm. to go to the BACON, the World Science Fiction Convention, in 1968. Mm-hmm. We already had known a lot of different writers like Ray Bradbury and so on. We met them in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was interesting. Um, got to, uh, got to uh, uh, meet them, got to you know, hang out with editors, with writers, kind of figure out what their lives were like and, mm-hmm. and realize this is where we wanted to be. Yeah. Did you attend, uh, is it Worldcon? Yeah, in Baycon, it was Worldcon in 68. Oh, I see, okay, they named it, each one had a different okay. annotation. So, um, what was your next big step that you took within writing? Well, I finished a novel when I was 19 years old, so 1970 or so, mm-hmm. uh, and when I finished that, uh, I, I tried to submit it a few times, uh, but I was starting writing another novel immediately. Uh, just kept going and writing short stories and novels and, and kept some... Eventually, by 1972, I had sold a couple of stories mm-hmm. uh, and, and was kind of getting the range, and mm-hmm. that was interesting. Uh, after that, um, moved on to uh, act, actively selling a novel. Uh, my first novel was called Hegira, mm-hmm. and uh, it took four years to sell it. Mm-hmm. Just a very difficult market. Uh, so... Eventually, I did sell it, and, and it got published in 79. Mm-hmm. Rapid succession, I had two other novels come out, 80, uh, uh, by 1980. Um, and uh, then I started writing bigger books, mm-hmm. more short stories, kind of expanding my range a little bit, including doing subject matter that was a little interesting at that time, and also a little, little 
hard to sell. Okay. So how do you choose between, I can imagine what the answer is, but I'll let you, between doing something as a short story versus saying, hey, this is a novel. This needs to be a novel. Well, the prime example of that is uh, I wrote a short story called Blood Music mm-hmm. and went up to the Nebula Banquets and uh, traveling with David Brin and John Carr, two writer-editor friends uh, of mine. Uh, David Brin, of course, is, is a writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and as I was describing this story, David says, this has to be a novel. He says, oh, you're right. So when the short story was bought, I started reworking it as a novel. Mm-hmm. And then, because it won a Hugo and a Nebula, suddenly I had a very good chance of selling that novel, mm-hmm. but not a perfect chance. Yeah. Because the editors were very resistant to science fiction in New York at the top level, not editors so much as publishers, mm-hmm. higher-end folks. And getting stuff published where I was at, which was at Ace at that point, Berkeley, uh, just was almost impossible. They wouldn't do hardcovers. They'd do paperbacks. Hmm. So people like Neuromancer, Bill Gibson, and so on, people like Bill Gibson, uh, couldn't get their hardcovers published by their main publisher. Mm-hmm. They just were, they didn't want science fiction connected to their names yeah. Oh, in the 80s. And that was even after Star Wars. Mm-hmm. And Star Wars kind of scared the hell out of them. The whole world was changing, and everyone wanted science fiction or fantasy or, or whatever. And, uh, and except for some publishers like... Valentine Del Rey or Bain Books or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, which came along a little later, uh, or Tor, uh, which started off in the mid-'80s. Um, th- it was just very, very difficult to get publishers to believe that science fiction was going to be a long-term thing. Mm-hmm. Well, it's kind of, it seems like in the 50s and 60s, you know, you had the whole space race and the competition between yeah. the Soviets and the U.S., and, you know, people were really into sci-fi as sort of a, that military thing. You know, had sort of that military feel and adventure. And well, that and, and at that time period, of course, Star Wars had a kind of a military feel in, in parts. Mm-hmm. But Starship Troopers had been published, mm-hmm. and that that won a Hugo and uh, got a lot of attention and caused a lot of controversy, and kind of led to the formation of the genre that we see today. That's military SF. Mm-hmm. What came on after that was Joe Haldeman mm-hmm. with Forever War, and he was a veteran. Uh, Heinlein had been a veteran, but he had never actually seen combat. Mm-hmm. Joe had seen combat, had been wounded in combat. Mm-hmm. And uh, he came back and wrote his book, and it was amazing. And one of the most influential novels ever. Mm-hmm. And Heinlein loved it. You know, they got along well. Yeah. Heinlein was, anybody who was a veteran was in good with Heinlein. Yeah. Anybody who'd served in the military or had been in combat mm-hmm. was in good with him. So it seems as though the sci fi genre has always had there's always some sort of struggle you know like yep. you know is was there ever a period of like where it felt like there was a new dawn like <laughs> for me it was it was one a fantastic moment when i wrote eon i couldn't get it sold mm-hmm. because a lot of publishers were rejecting it surprising publishers at that point mm-hmm. my publisher ace rejected it mm-hmm. uh i only had 200 pages and sample chapters and no, in notes but but they rejected it, and then other publishers started rejecting it wholesale, including the major science fiction publishers. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually, though, uh, I got published by Blue Jay Books, and uh, they took took it uh, and put a hardcover edition out, and it sold quite well. You know, it sold out its first print run, its only print run, 6,000 copies, mm-hmm. and sold it very quickly. Um, and over in England... Uh, it was looked at by a man named Anthony Cheatham, who was head of Random Century, mm-hmm. Random House UK, and uh, 
he said, this is great. This, this is the gone with the wind of science fiction. Let's do it. Mm -hmm. So they promoted the holy heck out of it. Mm -hmm. They put it in the subways. Uh, he, he promoted it around the whole commonwealth. And suddenly I was a huge bestseller in the English-speaking world outside the United States. Yeah. Well, the United States, Tor did a very nice paperback edition, which they were very proud of for years. Mm -hmm. And it sold extremely well. Mm -hmm. So for that time period, I was good. Mm -hmm. uh, I couldn't necessarily get myself read by the literary you know, I'm, I'm doing air quotes here, mm -hmm. uh, markets, uh, they just never do read science fiction. Yeah. To this day, they still don't like to do, although they do science fiction, they change the name. Yeah. They rub uh, the serial numbers off. Uh -huh. you know, different authors who are best-selling authors get published, and they do mostly science fiction, and it's just not noticed. That's not really science fiction, though. So. so is it all just based on number sales they can get, or you know? What no, because science fiction sold quite well. Yeah. And the, one of the interesting things is Michael Crichton, who was a really amazing writer mm -hmm. and filmmaker and everything else. Uh, his first novel, Andromeda Strain, he just says, I, "I'm not writing science fiction. Yeah. I'm not doing that stuff. It's all crap." Yeah. And he literally said that in an interview. Yeah. And so what he was doing is he was paying homage to his publishers. Yeah. who didn't believe science fiction was any good. Yeah. And then he sold like hotcakes. Yeah. He was one of the best-selling writers of the day, yeah. and it was all science fiction. Yeah. I've noticed that with a few authors who get on the bestseller list. Who do, they call them thrillers. Oh, there's techno-thrillers, right. Yeah. And, and, and Tom Clancy was a big science fiction reader. Yeah. And he published this book and you know, uh, took, got a very hard time publishing it, had a very hard time publishing it. Mm -hmm. um, and suddenly it's made, being made into a movie and sells millions of copies. Mm -hmm. So he's in good. But he's doing techno thrillers. He, publishing yeah. will say that's not science fiction, right. even though it's got technological stuff in it. Yeah. Uh, that's techno thrillers. Or later on, they would take J.K. Rowling and separate her out, and she's just doing young adult. Yeah. You know, that yeah. kind of thing. And it's just been amazing to watch the publishers try to tap dance to get away from doing anything genre except for mysteries. Yeah. Mysteries they love, and my explanation for that is that uh, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt read mysteries and admitted to it. Yeah. And suddenly in New York, he was just fine. Uh, that was good, so he could publish mysteries. Romance, a, a huge, okay. huge market. Mm -hmm. And women writers all over selling it very, very, very well. And it has no respect in New York mm -hmm. to this day. Yeah, it's... Um, so I think, you know, the United States population isn't... Of course, we have scientists and stuff, but it's a very small percentage. I don't think we're very technical, techno-minded um, country as far as the details. So it feels like that's what scares readers and, and thus scares publishers. They don't want, you know, people are afraid to touch it, you know, well, get into it. That's people don't kill people generally either, but they still read mysteries. Yeah, and so the the whole technical notion there's. Over the years, I've as I've been raised in military bases and so on, a lot of, of uh, people in the military read science fiction and mm -hmm. fantasy. They love it. Yeah. It's uh, if you're going aboard a submarine, bring a bunch of science fiction books. They'll be yeah. very appreciative. They love to read all of this sort of thing, and they are very technically oriented. So you have engineering, you have Boeing, you have aerospace, you have uh, other industries that are very technical oriented. And New York just doesn't understand how to deal with them. Mm -hmm. New York is not technically oriented. Mm -hmm. It's uh, business-oriented at the best. Yeah. And literary-oriented, if you go to the universities, where a lot of the editors come from. Mm -hmm. And the literature is realistic literature. You know, you must be writing about what you know. Yeah. And imaginative literature is second-rate. And consider there's so many stories we could tell about different writers who had trouble with that. 
everyone from Shirley Jackson to uh, to uh, Tony um, Morrison. Um, and Shirley Jackson was a really fine writer. And she was perfect for writing in New York because she could do almost anything. But she wanted to do more, you know, like The Haunting of Hill House. Yeah. And the publishers, oh, you write one more ghost story, you're going to be known as a horror writer. We don't want that. Mm -hmm. But Ira Levin wrote Rosemary's Baby, and that sold so huge. Yeah. They had to kind of separate that out. Mm -hmm. So they kept trying to subdivide literature based upon what they could accept. Mm -hmm. And the biggest and last one was Young Adult, which is now one of the biggest selling categories. Yeah. But very hard to get into because New York doesn't think it's science fiction or fantasy. So are there any big ideas you have sci-fi-wise that you just haven't that you haven't uh, broached yet because you're worried about no. the resistance. No, no I, I, I've done it all as far as I'm concerned and now I'm kind of filling in the details and writing stuff I want to write. Mm -hmm. uh, I wrote a, a, a book called Darwin's Radio because I had a long-term insight into what was going to happen with modern biology mm -hmm. and with the uh, decoding of the genome and looking at what was going to happen and then interviewing scientists and everything I wrote this novel Mm -hmm. about the next step in human evolution. Mm -hmm. uh, and it involved viruses and, and mobile DNA elements and all that kind of stuff. And I knew it pretty well. I've been kind of doing sub-sideline uh, research mm -hmm. for seven years. And when I handed the book in, mm -hmm. my editor rejected it. Yeah. And then the publisher looked at it and says, this is a pretty good book. So they fired the editor and published it. <laughs> oh, and that was sad and yeah. energizing. And then they ran with the book, and they published it, and they sold very, very well. So that was, that was in 1999. That was the second wind of this career, which was always a little, little difficult at times. But that's true of most writers. Mm -hmm. Nearly all writers, in science fiction certainly, mm -hmm. uh, do not have a steady home right. with their publishers. But, you, but then, then published uh, Darwin's Children, which they put off because the editor rejected the book. So it came out a few years later. Mm -hmm. uh, it might not have sold as well as it would have if it had been immediately a successor to the first book. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then I kept you know messing with other genres. I wanted to write a ghost story, mm -hmm. so I wrote a ghost story, and uh, the, the editor didn't like it, so they they pulled back on promotion for it. Uh, and this is my next editor pulled back on promotion for it and, and didn't really want to do anything at all, just wanted it to vanish. Mm -hmm. And then Stephen King gave it a quote yeah. in his baseball book. Uh -huh. you know? <laughs> so, so I says, hey, Stephen King gave us a quote. Yeah. And Andrew says, can we use that? And I says, you damn right we yeah. can. <laughs> he gave us permission and we ran with it. And so Stephen King reads my books. Yeah, I read nice. his. You know, and, and there's so much of that going on where the publishers are trying to subdivide, but the writers know and read everything. Uh -huh. So... Did you uh, were you able to support yourself fully through your writing, or did you do like teaching or anything like well, that? I did a little bit of some stuff, but I've been unemployed since 1982, 83, something like that. Mm -hmm. I think the last the last real job I had was working in a bookstore in La Jolla. Oh yeah, and thereafter it was writing. Yeah. So, um, what's your favorite? Uh, so I know blood music, you did a lot of science research. Do you have any favorite fields of science that you like reading about or following? All of them. I follow them all. I've written hard physics books. I've written hard astronomy. I've written what we could call military SF with the War Dogs books. Mm -hmm. But also when I was writing Eon, mm -hmm. uh, I was doing weird physics, astronomy, uh, spaceship design, engineering, <laughs> political stuff, you know, Cold War stuff, doing all of that in one novel. Mm -hmm. Of course, it was 85 when it was published, so 
became a little out of date when the Soviet Union collapsed, but yeah. so it's, it's sold constantly ever since. Mm -hmm. I just love it all, and, and I try to keep up with it all. But also I love mythology, language, uh, history. Mm -hmm. So it all influences my writing. So what do you think the role of a sci-fi writer is? What's, what's your goal? And, you know? To entertain people. Okay. People may not know what they want, but they know what they like. Mm -hmm. And so when they find something they like, they really attach to it, and then they can go deep in it. Mm -hmm. And when you're doing that, if you're giving them a good science fiction novel, they're also thinking hard thoughts about their lives in the future, mm -hmm. or just about the way society is. Mm -hmm. And uh, you, you, you take some of the things, uh, Handmaid's Tale, Margaret Atwood, has been doing this sort of thing along with people like Ursula Le Guin, mm -hmm. uh, Octavia Butler, <clears throat> and a lot of different writers examining the... Uh, the problems our society has in fiction, mm -hmm. and and taking it forward, and sometimes not not necessarily sugarcoating it, but providing it in a digestible fashion mm -hmm. that readers can go, I understand that character, I love that character, but that character's problems, her problems, seem to be society's problems. You know, to solve her problems, we got to change things in politics or whatever, yeah. and that's long been the case. So I I started doing this with uh, my FBI novels. Uh, Quantico and Mariposa and, and mentioning and, and while I was doing security conferences here in DC and attending different things with different groups, biology conferences um, put that all in there, what I was learning and what I read about the FBI mm -hmm. and became an FBI agent in my head yeah. and wrote this book and lo and behold my editor rejected it yeah. so that was it for her. Yeah. I was gone from that house after a couple of more books that were on contract. Mm -hmm. um, but then, she just couldn't kill me. The book got, got noticed because I was on different security things. I was uh, going to Homeland Security conferences, and there was this whole thing about the Sigma group where science fiction writers were, were consulting with government oh, yeah. agencies, mm -hmm. which was cool. Yeah. And suddenly we got notice from USA Today, and then my book got me on The Daily Show. Oh, nice. So the editor who had rejected me was gone at that point. She had been, she had been farmed out. Yeah. You know, it's just very discouraging. If editors would support me, they could live long careers, but I'm not sure that they work in publishing that long. So um, uh, did you have any superpower or high-tech device you wanted when you were a kid? Yeah, I wanted a word processor. I can imagine them. I can imagine you could write a word on a screen and erase it mm -hmm. and not have to put white out on it or, mm -hmm. or retype the whole damn thing. And, and uh, by 73, that stuff was looking real possible. Mm -hmm. And uh, by 79, we were starting to see the computers show up mm -hmm. in the press rooms at the Voyager JPL mm -hmm. events where all the reporters were sitting on typewriters at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And then very slowly, uh, computers started coming in. Yeah. Jerry Pornell brought in a K-Pro, which he was really proud of. He was writing for different computer mm -hmm. magazines and, and, and getting free equipment, and that that was pleasing to him. Mm -hmm. But a lot of other writers, uh, David Gerald and Larry Nevin and so on, were, were also working on computers. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, that's, I knew that's what I wanted. Mm -hmm. So my wife brought home a computer from her work one time, a little box, mm -hmm. and it had a word processor thing on it, and we tried it out with a screen, and I thought, this is it. Yeah. And I bought one within a year or so. Mm -hmm. So I just remember the question I had. When you write, do you do you feel like you're more interested in entertaining and educating yourself and other people happen to like it, or do you focus more on what your audience might want? I have no idea. 
Okay. I, my, my hope is that my audience wants what I want because I'm not going to be able to write for them. Mm -hmm. I have to write to please and excite myself mm -hmm. about what's going on in the story. The characters, the, this stuff all comes, uh, and has since I was a kid, comes kind of instinctively. And uh, I just hope it works out for the best. Do you have a core group of people who you try to please as well? No. Okay. No, there are some out there, mm -hmm. and there's something I, I don't really cater to anybody because that might lose another part of the audience. Yeah. Uh, but if I'm writing a science fiction story and I'm telling the technology on it, I have to communicate clearly but not simplify necessarily. Mm -hmm. And also, some of my crackpot ideas are so complicated, I have no idea what they mean. Yeah. So I rely on scientists to explain them to me. Mm -hmm. So, what's your latest project? Tell me about that. Well, I'm working on a fantasy novel now, mm -hmm. having done science fiction for quite a few years. Uh, and I want to go back to fantasy because people say I'm a hard science fiction writer, and I am. Mm -hmm. um, and the way that, that when you write one book, it's like the ever seen the big bus, the movie? No. And the, the oh, former bus driver, whose name I'm going to forget, the actor who plays in this comedy, mm -hmm. is sitting there talking about a bus that gets stranded in the uh, Rocky Mountains. Mm -hmm. And his lament is that, that he can't get work anymore. You eat one foot and they call you a cannibal, he says. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a great line. And that was how, that's how hard science fiction works. If you can write one good hard science fiction book, everyone else is going to kind of push you into a category. Yeah. So I have a, a, a Bears Fantasies was an anthology that came out of my short stories and so on. And, mm. and I pointed out, you know, I, 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 uh, I might have eaten the foot. Mm. I might be a cannibal, but I could still do the other side. You know, yeah. Still be a vegetarian. But yeah, fantasy is one of my favorite things, and uh, I wrote two novels early on. Mm -hmm. my, actually, my first uh, amateur trunk novel was a novel called The Infinity Concerto, which I rewrote. So now I'm writing a, a, a fantasy I've been thinking of for over 30 years called mm -hmm. The Unfinished Land, and having great fun with it. Okay, cool. So um, where can people find your stuff online? Well, there's Open Road has a lot of books available. Mm -hmm. uh, you can find them on Amazon. Uh, you can find them, of course, in bookstores. Uh, they're pretty much commonly available. And, and if you, you look it up on Amazon, you can buy all the books you want. Do you have a website, personal website? Yeah, gregbear.com. We're also on Facebook. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I, I try to answer all my email. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's all the questions I have. Any last cool. words or comments? No, it's good to see uh, people branching out into other branches of journalism and, and personal journalism. Mm -hmm. you know, it kind of reminds me of the uh, 18th century in England mm -hmm. where you're doing your own journals, you know? Yeah. And that's cool. Okay, cool. Well, thank you. My thank pleasure. you. Appreciate it. Good chatting with you. Too. Thank you for listening. One of the best ways in which you can provide feedback for this podcast is to rate me on iTunes. Uh, please give me a good rating if you like this, or uh, feel free to give me a bad rating if you didn't, and I'll use that feedback to hopefully make this a better podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram under Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi, on Facebook under Chris Alvarez WLC, on YouTube under Chris Alvarez WLC and on Twitter under Chris Alvarez WLC. You can also get more information on my website, chrisalvarez.com. Please remember my name, Chris, does not have an H. So it's C R I S A L V A R E Z.com. Thanks for listening and keep imagining the future.